who brings what information to the police, and then whether the police are able to develop any anything enough to make an arrest, and then enough for it to hold up in court for uh, my prosecutors and me to be able to put it in front of the jury. I understand. Um, you know, we have some real old cases, I know. And I, I, I talk with a lot of families that feel forgotten. And um, I just, it's not, I know it's not you and, and it's not everyone that's in the Commonwealth Attorney's Office. But I want to, my, my curiosity is what is or has the city itself put in place for these individuals to get the help that they need, the healing help that they need? A lot of, a lot of what's on offer to help families as they try to cope with the loss of one of their loved ones comes through the Virginia Victims Fund and through Virginia uh, victim and witness advocates who uh, work out of Commonwealth's attorney's offices. So we have uh, one of the largest victim and witness assistance programs in the United, or pardon me, in Virginia, in our office. And they try to link people up with services. Uh, we, if you've lost a loved one to, to an act of violence, there are, there's some money to help with burial expenses. There's some money, but it's limited to help with counseling, with, with mental health care, but it is limited. And in fact, there's an effort in the General Assembly right now up in Richmond to try and expand both what services are available to lift some of these caps, but it is limited. Uh, the city itself is, um, you know, their, their work is a lot right now in what's called violence interruption to try and reach uh, surviving victims or to reach the family members who are grieving for the loss of a loved one and try and break the cycle of violence. There is a group called the Newark Street Team who have come to Norfolk to train people who are in the community, people like Brother Bilal Al-Muhammad, uh, people like uh, Clay, Brother Clay Marquez, who are uh, sort of going out there in the community and trying to talk to people about uh, the fact that, that two wrongs just make another wrong. And, but in terms of, of help for grieving family members and grieving loved ones, it's not, it's, it's traditionally been a Richmond, uh, a Richmond responsibility. And the, unfortunately, Richmond for a lot of things, it's got, it's got a lot of money for tax cuts for rich people. But when it comes to money to help um, working people, uh, victims, all of these other folks, you, you tend, especially from the Republican side, to get a lot of, a lot of lip service, but not a lot of results. So the, the city is doing what it can, but this is really, really a state level issue and it's a state level responsibility. So it, it never involves the city to help correct the wrong that's been done within the city. The, on a systems level, yes, the, the city controls the underlying or some of the underlying causes of violence uh, because violence is a, is a symptom of, of uh, disinvestment in communities, of unequal schools, of 
the lack of availability of good blue collar jobs, the, the lack of transportation, lack of healthcare and mental health care, oh, all of which fall those lacks most heavily on black and brown communities and on poor communities. So the city can can make a long term difference in making sure that schools are integrated, making sure that every child in Norfolk has access to a high quality education in working to lobby in Richmond for things like or funding for for GRTC for for our bus lines. So, but it is a, a huge, huge problem there. And it's the kind of thing where there are no, no amount of good ideas uh, coming out of uh, coming out of Norfolk or, or Richmond are going to be enough unless the politicians and especially the Republican politicians in um, in Richmond start to fund the things that are going to make a difference. Hey, Janice, yes. Janice, let me ask a question. Um, uh, Mr. Prosecutor, again, good afternoon. Uh, good evening. Um, as you know, public safety, that's a concern on a national level. Um, however, on a local level, as citizens, what we're looking for is, in short, two things. Uh, with respect to public safety, we're looking for reassurance that we are safe. And if there is a crime that's committed, we're looking for, as we were saying here, closure. Um, people feel victimized, one, by the crime. We can't do anything about that. However, um, well, there are the mitigation that's about those crimes that is on the level of the police department and the municipality, municipalities. You know what I mean? Stacks <laughs> it. But um, two, the closure. The closure, whereas if there is a crime committed, the citizens are looking for the public officials, the public officials who they basically, one of the elements that they elected for their public safety. So if that's the case, given that standing, how do you propose the, the um, citizens of this city to actually pursue some of these because it's not um, widely disseminated in the means of how these resources are available. Because you've mentioned uh, several of them just now. I've been here for 20, I'm out of Virginia Beach, but I've been in the Hampton Roads for 20 plus years. I never heard any of that. However, I do hear about crimes on a daily basis. So the dissemination of this information would would actually be one leg of that reassurance of the populace that the city is here to protect or at least to assist. Yes, of course. And there, the the trouble with with all of this, Darren, is that some of the people think about public safety, and this includes a lot of elected officials. They think about it in terms of cops, arrests, and and prison sentences. And all of those things matter. It's not that they don't matter. But by the time that, that the person has gotten to the point where the police are arresting them and I'm trying them in court, they're so far over the waterfall that that you know all we're doing is is picking up the pieces, you know, to, to mix the metaphors. So we've got these upstream things, and we we have to continue to, to advocate at the federal, the state, and the local level for true crime prevention. Uh, which goes back to housing, goes back to jobs. 
So if we don't want people dealing on the corner, make sure let's make sure they have a good enough job available to them that that's not the option they choose. So if we don't want children, you know, teenagers picking up guns and shooting each other, let's restrict their access to guns. Let's uh, let's you know give them enough of, of structure that they're not looking for structure in gangs. But and then you know, the question about accountability. Like that's where the police department and I work together along with other parts of the system. Uh, you know, if you want to go upstream, it starts with citizens, witnesses and victims. And you know, the point that I make over and over again is I can't prosecute somebody unless the police are able to put together proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The police can't arrest anybody and give that person to me to prosecute unless the public, the community comes forward and gives them the information so that they can make an arrest. The police can't arrest people they can't identify and I can't prosecute the people the police can't arrest. So, and all of that then ties in with um, the fact that, that there's a difference between the amount of information necessary to get an arrest and the amount of information necessary to get a conviction. The, the police do their best to identify the people who commit crimes. To get an arrest warrant on somebody, they need about a 50-50. They need about a coin flip in terms of the amount of evidence. The instruction that a jury gets when I put a case up for trial is that the evidence has to, to rule out every possibility of innocence. Every reasonable theory of innocence is the legalese. And what that means is if, if you know, all 12 people have to say, no, there's really no other explanation for, for this other than that that particular person committed this particular crime. And that's super difficult. And one of the, one of the tensions in the system is always that what happens when the police have enough information to make the arrest, but we don't have enough information to convict. The, that is, or where a witness talks to the police and tells the police what, what we would need, but then never shows. But we can't use the witness's statement to the police. We have to, the Constitution requires us to have that person in court. So you know, how do we do that? So, and, and so how do we respect somebody's constitutional right to have witnesses in court with the reality that people are scared, people don't want to come forward. A lot of murders are committed by people known to the victim and the victim's family in front of the friends and neighbors of either the victim or the defendants. And you know, how do we offer those, those folks reassurances that they're gonna be safe? And also, how do we get people to, to cooperate and trust in the system? When we're talking about a, a criminal justice system that has systematically harmed black and brown people over the last 400 years, and where people can say, look, you know, my brother-in-law or my cousin, you know, went to jail for driving on a suspended license, but you know, you all don't have a, you, know, you don't have anybody in jail for this murder. Like, people don't want to trust the system. They want to, they want to go out and handle it themselves. And the, these are again, big, big things. And a lot of them are out of my hands. You know, if, if I think the evidence is enough, but a jury disagrees, a man walks free. If people come forward and talk to the police, but then they don't come forward to go into court, the man walks free. The, you know, we can make plea deals and try to make offers, but people want to take them sometimes and sometimes they don't. And we also have 
the the reality that because of of some of the really necessary reckonings that we're having with bias in law enforcement, bias among prosecutors, wrongful convictions, the the fact that that you you don't have to scratch very very deep beneath the surface to see the number of people who were executed when they were innocent, the to to know that what even me you know 16 years now as a prosecutor the evidence that i thought that a jury would accept as proof beyond a reasonable doubt at the beginning of my career though i need way more than that today i need way more than that to to convince a jury because the juries just don't take people's word for it the way that they used to and on in some ways that's that's really you know a necessary corrective and in some ways it makes it really hard but as a progressive prosecutor, one of the things that I've tried to do is to try and be honest about the fact that the system had racist underpinnings, that the system produced racially tilted outcomes, that, that we as prosecutors, as a profession, have something to answer for, for, for locking up innocent people. And it's to try and build enough trust so that people come forward and they're willing to risk their, their own safety to cooperate and identify murderers and put murderers away. And also so the jurors can say, you know what, this system caused a lot of harm, but this particular prosecutor is acknowledging that. And you know, so we, we're willing to have a little bit more trust than we would from some other prosecutor in some other place. Oh, so, it's all so, hard, man. It's hard. Let me, let me interject real quick because, Dennis, uh, yeah, I just have one more question as a follow along to this is that you've hit a couple of key words, trust and abuse, racism, uh, reassurance. The frame it in my question is messaging. So what you're saying, I understand about the, um, the family members need to uh, participate, but look at it from the point of view of a citizen. I mean, um, I don't speak for all, but I, I have um, some experience with um, a mini. And when you receive that message, messaging is empowering. Now the citizens will feel like they have something that, um, that, 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 that empowerment leads to the trust and the reassurance that goes back to the public safety. You know, we're playing um, a word map right now and uh, what I'm trying to get to the point is that if there is a failure in that messaging, that trust becomes now abuse. And in particular, said that there are some inherent abuses with the word racism, as well as you stated, there's a many situations whereas those scenarios have been part of the system. And we want to avoid that because ultimately the citizens want reassurance and closure. However, if that message is coming come across to whereas we can't solve this case because you did not provide me the information. And I'll give you a case in point, and I hope this is not a national issue. The state uh, on CBS Morning News, the detective in Jacksonville and uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, told the parents who their child was killed, your son wasn't an angel and said, if you want me to solve this case, you as a citizen need to go out and get me the evidence and then I will solve that case. 
I don't, I, I honestly feel that that's not the message that we, that the city of Norfolk is trying to push forward. But when they come back and say, well, we can't solve this case because you as a 80 year old or a 12 year old, you can, you haven't went down and walked the streets. Whereas a, a person has already displayed a criminal intent, criminal actions by having a reputation of being abusive but since you did not confront that guy, however, if you do go for confront that person and you do have a sidearm with you and you protect yourself, well, you know what? You didn't have the authority. You didn't have the authority to go confront that. You shouldn't let the police do their job. That scenario comes across to being a burden to, to the family, family. And that's the, the takeaway that I'm trying to say. If we send the wrong message to say it is the citizen's responsibility to solve their own cases, now becomes a burden which erodes the trust of the city and which erodes the public safety perception that the, uh, the citizens have. Oh, amen. 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 And, so that, and as, as, I'm, as I have stated, they say this gun violence is a public safety issue. This is, you, you, you're giving the public too much power. And they take that concept in their hands and they make it a public issue. They go out because they feel like they're not being justly justified. Especially in these cold cases, people are hurting. Ramon, you know I lost my son back in 2004. And my son sold drugs. But he was a good man. He had businesses but he sold drugs uh, on the night he was murdered someone tried to rob him take his drugs and his money that doesn't mean he would he wasn't a bad man and that's how the they saw it in court they didn't care what he had did or what he was doing. He could have been slinging drugs, but he never carried a gun. He never did anything but probably speed outside the law. I mean, other than the drugs and the speeding. And I'm not saying that to make my son sound like he was a perfect angel. He was my angel, and he's my angel now. But even though it's been all these years, I hurt. When I turn on the TV, I hurt. When I hear my girlfriend that I grew up with, her son murdered out in Norview, I hurt. Something needs to be done about this. I, I really don't want to see more cold cases, more families. Even though my case was solved, the person is in penitentiary. I hurt. So can you imagine how these other people feel and they haven't got an inkling of satisfaction? 
And that goes to the closure, um, reassurance, as well as um, when the family members feel like they're being burdened. And in this, and, uh, so those are the issues that if we can empower the citizens to say, hey, there is information out there to help you. And guess what? Um, right now, this is, you know, as a prosecutor, I saw in the news last year that Norfolk, Virginia had a higher murder rate than Detroit, Michigan. You could buy a house in Detroit, Michigan for $2,500 a couple of years ago, but they had a higher, more, we had a higher murder rate. I mean, we have the drug cases with the fentanyl, people are killing themselves, but that's independent of the um, interaction, whereas we have a situation where one person using a gun can attack another person. That happens, but the closure is what we, that's, that's what we're trying, as, as trying to project the message to empower the citizens as a part of this power podcast. How is the city using their resources to assist the people with grief counseling, a school gets shot up, Walmart gets shot up, et cetera. And, and use the word shot up, I don't use it lightly. It's a real heinous act. Uh, but the grief counselors are provided. I mean, for someone to actually be burdened and mentally traumatized, I mean, they have PTSD. To find this information have, for themselves is hard. They shouldn't have to go to New, to um, Richmond and then say, hey, I'm a citizen of Norfolk. Um, how help. do I get resources from Richmond so I can, at a minimum, get grief counseling, even though they're available? And that's what I'm saying. As the um, And that's one message we're trying to say. That's how the, the, the resources of the city can help provide the um, empowering the, the um, citizens. That's all I have to say, Janice. Didn't mean to go with a 20-minute run on Raquel, Raquel, do you have anything you would like to ask, um, Grandma? Uh, I was listening to you all. Um, I just um, want to piggyback on what, um, what you had said earlier as far as witnesses. I understand that that's a problem there. You have witnesses at one point and then there um people scare them, I guess that's what, um, what they do. They scare them to a point where they don't show up for court. Is it anything that they're doing at this point that will reassure, reassure these witnesses that it's okay to come out and, um, and speak up? Are they putting anything together that, you know, to make these witnesses safe and feel secure about uh, speaking out against the crime? That's an excellent question. And the answer is, you know, for decades, basically nothing. The, and, you know, this ties in a lot with what Janice, you've said and what you've said, Darren. You know, it's, you know, nobody, no police officer should say to a grieving family, you out, go out and do your own police work. But, you know, but what, when we talk about, you know, citizens need to step forward, or what I mean, at least, when I say that is, if you see something, say something. Like, you know, if you, this isn't, it's not snitching, it's helping. It's, telling. It, it's making sure that somebody else doesn't die. It's making sure that somebody who has killed doesn't have the opportunity to go out and kill again. And, and so you don't have another grieving family. I and, but, but I mean, I had, 
I was visiting with the grandfather of a murder victim within the last several months. He came and talked to me in my office. I'm not going to say, you know, who or where or what. And he said, look, you know, he actually did, you know, what Darren, I'm, I'm telling you, you know, we don't need people to do it, you know, and what, what we shouldn't be asking. And he said, look, this is the person who can identify my son's killer, my grandson's killer. And I said, that's great. Who is it? He told me. And I said, I would need that. I would need the person who can identify that guy to come. And he said, he's never going to come. These guys are dangerous. And I said, look, you understand? it's out of my hands. Like, even if I know who the person is, unless there's somebody who can come to court. And he said, he's scared. He doesn't want to come. And he said, what resources are there? And I said, there are none. There are no resources to protect him. And that's and where, that's where I say we have to make that change. Well, I, I have been, this has been a personal crusade of mine. I just want to say that that's not, that's a scary scenario you just stated. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, good, that's right? not reassuring. <laughs> no, and, and that's why again a personal personal passion project of mine. That ever since I realized that Virginia had no witness protection program, I have personally lobbied. I've written two major columns in the Virginian Pilot with my counterpart from Fairfax County. The I lobbied in Richmond. I've lobbied the Professional Prosecutors Association of Virginia. I've talked to Congressman Scott, and I've talked to Senator Warner and Senator Kane. And, you know, last year, Don Scott, the, the delegate from Portsmouth, Hello? Well, this has been... Put in a request. Sorry, go ahead. I think we're getting ready to be cut off again. Uh, Rami, I'd like to have you on again, if we may, uh, because this is not done yet, but I don't have that much of a timing. Um, so I would like to say thank you for joining me on Surviving Gun Violence, the impact, the agony, the aftermath, with my team, Dern and Raquel. Uh, we suppose they have Balao and Rick James up here as well. Um, they may have forgot or just couldn't attend, but I hope you would consider coming back on again. It would be a pleasure to come back. And you know, thank you for having me. And I may have good news on witness protection by the time we come back again. Well, hey, you know, the, you, you know, the, the, there's no such thing as Stephen in politics. And after killing witness protection funding last year, Glenn Youngkin's put it in his budget this year. Amen. No way. So <laughs> we'll see. Uh, we'll see. They, they stole, our, stole my idea, but as long as they fund it, I don't care. They can have my idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Thank you again. Yeah. Um, this is Surviving Gun Violence. And yes. Thank you. Appreciation yeah. to you. Yeah. God bless all of you and your families. Thank you for speaking, and I'll look forward to speaking to you again soon. Real soon. Bye now. Bye now. Bye-bye. Recording stopped.